0: You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. And it is our Creative 100 issue, uh, which is my favorite issue of the year, uh, because uh, our team spends a lot of time compiling the 100 most creative professionals in, in well, in America, in the world. Uh, we used to limit it to America. Now it's like, it's all over the place. It's the whole planet. And so that's a lot of people to talk about Um and so to, for, for that uh, conversation, we've got a VIP roster of my Adweek colleagues here. Uh, I'll just kind of introduce one at a time. Kelsey Sutton, our streaming editor. Kelsey wrote the cover story for this year's Creative 100 issue, which we will certainly be talking about. Kelsey, it is so great to have you back on the show.
2: It's so great to be here. Thanks so much.
0: And we've got back Shannon Miller, creative editor for Adweek, who wrote many of the Creative 100 profiles uh, this, this year. Uh, and I cannot wait to talk about some of them because, Shannon, you got to write up some of my favorite folks on the list this year. Thanks for joining the show.
3: Always happy to be here.
0: And Stephen Lepetak, our Europe Bureau Chief. Uh, Stephen, uh, we expanded our international coverage, as I mentioned, on the Creative 100. We have 15 international agency leaders this year, which is the most we've ever had on that 100 list. And kind of sprinkled throughout, we have uh, some folks across uh, UK, Europe, and other parts of the world. Uh, So excited to have you on to talk about those.
1: Hey, guys. Good to be here.
0: All right. Well, let's get going because we've got a lot to talk about. Kelsey, I wanted to start with the cover story. Tell us first, this is a big deal. We spend a lot of time debating this every year of who's going to be on the Creative 100 uh, cover. And I should mention that no one on the Creative 100 is ever repeated twice. So every year when I ask who should be on the Creative 100, uh, people always say, uh, you know, Donald Glover and certainly, yes, they've all been on (laughs) each year. We are now in our seventh year and we feature fresh uh, names each year. So who, Kelsey, is on this year's cover.
2: We have Amber Ruffin on the cover of Creative 100 this year, and uh, I'm just so delighted that I got to talk to her. Uh, (laughs) I watched, I spent several days uh, just watching her show uh, for work, which, you know, I can't complain about that.
0: Well, tell us uh, first before we get into that conversation, because she really is a fascinating person who's blending so many different kinds of tone and content into the uh, very abruptly changed format of late night talk show, which of course changed uh, very dramatically amid quarantine. But tell us about her show. Where is it? What's it about? What's the hook? And uh, and who is she?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, Amber Ruffin is a comedian who is a writer for Late Night with Seth Myers on NBC and it was announced uh, I believe in early 2020 pre-pandemic uh, that she was going to have her own weekly talk show uh, Late Night with Amber Ruffin. Uh, the Amber Ruffin show is what it's called <laughs> um, but what and that is on Peacock uh, which is NBC's streaming service and it really, when I talked to her, something that was so fun to to hear about was how the show really had to change when uh, the world changed. She thought she was going to have a live audience. Of course, there is no live audience still, um, and uh, she. But but the genesis remains the same, which is she said, "I write so many." sketches every week, so many little bits and jokes, and so much of it gets thrown right in the trash because we just don't have the time on Late Night with Seth Meyers. So she and uh, one of the uh, other co-writers of Late Night, Jenny Hagel, said, let's do our own show. We have so much material. Wouldn't that be fun? And that energy of just let's just have a great time is so present in the show. It's so infectious. Uh, and it really makes for, you know, wonderful weekly show that has really taken off on Peacock and is now really one of the most, you know, she is sort of a flagship presence on that streaming service, uh, which I don't think, uh, she was really expecting. Uh, so it's a happy surprise for her and, you know, for us too as as we're watching her show,
0: yeah,, uh, you and I were talking before we uh before we started recording the show that she i it sounds like she had a really good mindset going into this, like kind of like I would do if I got handed some bizarrely cool opportunity, but then felt like I don't know if I'm actually going to be any good at this uh you know, what was her mindset going in of whether she thought this show would would take off or not?
2: Something she told me that I thought was so uh I guess, revealing about the way that she went into this. Her mindset was, she said, you know, a lot of late night shows get created just sort of to die. You know, there it's like, oh, this sounds fun, but we know it's not going to last. You know, and especially on streaming, uh, there have been a lot of efforts to try to make late night uh, work um, and they really haven't stuck on on streaming. And so she said, you know, we're just going to go into it have a good time like let's make ourselves laugh every week let's ride this until the wheels fall off and of course that has not happened <laughs> and um but you know that energy is what i think you know she's so not um, serious in that in that f- respect, right? She was just thinking, let's just have a good time, let's make each other laugh. And especially when it became apparent there was going to be no live audience, it especially became about making each other laugh, making her writers laugh, you know, making herself laugh, having a good time. And it's just such an infectious uh, you know energy. you're sitting down, you're watching a bunch of friends, you know, make each other crack up for for 20 or 30 minutes.
0: Now it's it, one of the other hallmarks of the show that makes it so excellent is that it's not always jokes, right? Like this is something that I think late night uh, talk has always struggled with is like when things get serious, they they often struggle to shift those gears because these are people who have a very set style of like, they do a monologue and they pause for you to laugh and they like, you know, they try to turn everything into a joke and they are typically like older white dudes, you know. Uh, it, she brings something different and this has been a rough year. I think if she had just sat around making jokes the entire time, it just wouldn't have been reflective of the times. Uh, tell us about how she kind of walks that line and how she she shifts up tone every once in a while.
2: Yeah, absolutely. She Something that she told me um, that I thought, was so great was she just said you know you can't gaslight your audience and this was it was such 2020 was such a difficult year for for everybody it was also it it was unifying in the challenges of it right it wasn't just one person was going through a really tough year everybody had a really challenging year and um so she said that that was really kind of unifying there was a sense of camaraderie around that but She said that, you know, talking about these really important topics, you know, she has done a lot of segments in the middle of her show, talking about race, um, talking about social justice, talking about current events, um, you know, in the sort of like the Derek Chauvin verdict when that came out, you know, and and when she, those segments are really heart wrenching and emotional. And um, what she said is she said, you know, I... We have to show our audience, the people who are watching, that we love them, that we care about them. And we can't let them feel gaslit by saying, let's just put on this show and just crack a bunch of jokes and pretend that what's something horrible that's happening or something really challenging that's happening isn't happening, right? We have to tell the truth. We can't let people feel like their feelings, their emotions are being ignored. We can't let them feel like they're being lied to. And I thought that that sort of feeling of care uh, and and feeling like it was really important to care for her audience um, is a great way to step back when you watch her entire, you know, if you're watching episode after episode of her show, which I did in advance of, of talking to her, really sort of frames that show in, in a really um, unique way. It's not just about, being current or being timely. It's about love, uh, for, for her audience. And I just, you know, what a, what a great way to sort of frame all of her work, even the silly parts, right? Like if it all comes, if it's all, if that's the genesis of all of it, um, it's a really, you know, I, I just thought that was a really remarkable way to, to think about her, you know, your work as a comedian.
0: Well, and, and to, to expand on that too, uh, this year we added an entire new list of TV and streaming innovators. Uh, this is new to Creative 100. We break Creative 100 up into a bunch of more digestible lists of you know agency talent and directors. Uh, but this year, it really felt like we needed a place for showrunners. We needed a place for these kind of innovative talents, uh, even beyond Amber. Uh, Shannon, you wrote up quite a few of those Uh, Tell us about it. It felt like this year, representing a lot of different voices, bringing this kind of blend of entertainment, but with also a social awareness and a a sense of gravity was kind of a recurring theme of who who really had risen to the top this year.
3: Absolutely. There was this um, sort of persistent through line of awareness when it came to like who we thought was really doing important work in the TV space. And it wasn't necessarily uh, sequestered to just civil rights and social justice, but just having an awareness that your audience is much grander and much more diverse than what we've, what the industry has been servicing for years and years and years. Um, Jasmine Lawson is a really great example of that. Uh, she's the content executive over at Netflix and I I struggle with finding a less ridiculous way to summarize my my uh, just deep interest in her career but I, I if I were to sort of summarize her her impact I feel like she's of the people she's really, really, really in love with television. And she has a deep understanding of what the audience that looks like her, a Black woman, is looking for. And the big thing for her during the past year was bringing a lot of Black television, a lot of classic Black television that had been absent from the streaming space. And she managed to do that by bringing seven huge series To Netflix over the summer while we were under lockdown and after years of, you know, the audience begging for it It was like sister, sister, uh, one on one, half and half, the Parkers, Moesha, these huge staples in black entertainment that Netflix competitors didn't feel a need to really include in their libraries. And she was key in making that happen. It's just having that deep understanding of what entertainment has been missing and, you know, finding the drive to satisfy that void has been a reoccurring, as you mentioned, sort of like a reoccurring thing amongst the honorees this year.
0: Well, let's, um, let's talk about, Steve, Stephen, you covered uh, uh, Jed Mercurio who is, um, again, not a name that I think Americans may know yet, but holy cow, I mean, everything he has touched in Britain seems like it has absolutely exploded. Tell us, who is Jed Mercurio as one of our TV and streaming innovators on this year's Creative 100?
1: Yeah, um, Jed has, I mean, he's really come to the fore in the last seven years here in the UK. So he has been around for a few decades. He's created some... Shows that have done well, but his major hits has been Line of Duty, which uh, started seven years ago and has been an ongoing internal affairs drama within the British police force to try to get to the bottom of uh, what nefarious goings on are happening. And uh, as one of his characters, or actually most of the characters at some point say, they're all out to get the bent coppers. So that has been a massive hit, but it started out, It's a really small show on BBC Two that found an audience that people just started to to talk about and share and somehow it moved to BBC One. uh, I think it was around about Series Three and from there it's just been an absolute phenomenon. So it ended here uh, last month uh, on Series Six to a record audience, live viewing audience of over 12 million, which for a Sunday night drama in Britain is incredible these days but he's also very well known for having created a show called The Bodyguard uh, that aired 2 or 3 years ago similar idea uh but it was about um a bodyguard who is assigned to protect the prime minister and he's known for not being too easy to second guess in his writing so he likes to shock and he knows that the audience love it as well so um, it was great to get a bit of time uh, to get some of his thoughts for this, but he's going to be someone to watch out for. Uh, his shows are on Netflix, and I know uh, some people over in America have mentioned it to me. So I think you're going to see a lot more of them.
0: Yeah, The uh, and then, Kelsey, I feel like we cannot talk about this past year. Of streaming or of life, without talking about Disney Plus and specifically about WandaVision, uh, Jack Schaefer, the showrunner uh, for WandaVision, is on this year's list. Um, tell me, you obviously covered this space every day. I'm, I'm just going to be upfront. I'm, I'm a gigantic WandaVision fan. I watched every episode probably at least three times, um, and and no other show has grabbed me like that. I think just the conversations it started, the watching it with my kids was such a for, for multiple reasons, was such an, a, a fascinating experience of just telling them about the tropes. But then also, it's a heavy show, you know? It's, like, it's about working through grief and loss, but it's also this superhero thing. That show was something else. What, what's your take on it and its kind of role in the streaming universe over this past year?
1: Yeah, no spoilers. I haven't seen the end of it. I'm halfway through.
2: <laughs> All right, no spoilers, Stephen. What I will say, and I think... Um, you know, this is such a good show to ha- and Jack is such a good person to have on on our Creative 100 because WandaVision, I think in a lot of ways really sort of embodies what we're talking about right now, which is sort of this love of television. Like WandaVision in so many ways was a, an ode to TV and sort of the ways in which it sort of shaped uh our understanding of the world decade after decade, right? So Stephen, if you've watched some of it, you know that there, are, there is an engagement with uh, sit- classic sitcoms and classic television that has such a meaningful place in, I guess, American cultural consciousness. But then also, you know, to your point, it's also, it's a, D- it's a Disney Plus show. It's super important for that company's continued growth, that streaming service as sort of an anchor it's Marvel. So of course it has to have these beats, um, that, you know, allow it to fit in the Marvel universe. You know, certain things have to happen, um, to set up the next Marvel series, the next, uh, movie, things like that. So, but I think on a, on a broad level, this idea of just kind of recognizing how important television is for, for just, you know, understanding the world around us, how it shapes culture, and uh, you know, to to Shannon's point, you know, how it's really important to not even just do an ode to like the the biggest of the biggest, but the biggest of the biggest in in Black American cultural consciousness. Like having, I guess, there's just a so many ways in which we sort of interface with the world that is shaped by the the media that we consume and and it's just carries a really special place in our hearts and I love that that WandaVision really wanted to engage with that uh, sort of in addition to all the other things that it does um, you know plot wise Marvel wise Disney plus wise so it's definitely a lot to chew on when you watch that show but I I mean I'm with you I, I loved it.
0: I feel like we can take the real estate in our brain that Joss Whedon's name has has, has populated and we can just highlight and delete and just paste in Jack Schaefer because uh, I don't really care to ever really hear about Joss Whedon Same. again, um, but I cannot <laughs> wait to see what Jack Schaefer does. She is just... Uh, An incredible—I mean, she just seems like kind of the opposite of what we've learned about Joss Whedon in the last few years. Like, our interview with her, she really talks about what a collaborative process, how much faith and trust she put in the writers of WandaVision to really handle something, which, again, without spoiling it for those who haven't watched, uh, and it truly is just a very special show— it's it's heavy. It's and it it's like, but it's also fun. And and that line it reminds me in weird ways of Good Place. Um, Good Place is another show that very very funny, very light, incredibly heavy, and occasionally soul crushing. Like when you think about the <laughs> the messages of what what these shows those have got to be the hardest shows to to put together, uh, and they really require just an absolute A plus writing team. She spends pretty much our entire interview uh, with Jack Schaefer t- talking about uh, the writers and how they really deserve all the credit for WandaVision. But I think you also need someone at the top who is not going to kind of enforce this is a superhero show. And I think we saw Shannon, you and I haven't gotten to talk about this. Holy cow. I just realized um, now that we've seen again with no spoilers, but now that we've seen WandaVision and we've seen Falcon and the Winter Soldier, like what's your take on those two in the sense of what they accomplished and what, where maybe they, you know, fell down.
3: Okay, so I am going to admit something. I actually have not um, seen Falcon and the Winter Soldier yet. It came at a super, super busy time. Um, And I'm not sure what the temperature is on that one. But when I tell you that I was up um, at 3 a.m. for every episode of WandaVision... Uh, no, you were one of those I really people was. That I, I kept hoping wouldn't tweet. And, and that's the thing, it's like I and I did that because Twitter is ridiculous. And it was such a a minefield hours after the show premiered that it's like you either had to keep up with it or just stay off of Twitter. And there was no way to do that with my job. So my o- my only option, I felt, was to just be up with everybody else and keep my mouth shut. And um what I what I what kept me so engaged was this idea that Marvel is ready and willing to challenge itself and challenge the idea of what a Marvel entity is. And Wanda Vision was absolutely key in that. To take a show and center it not on the action so much, even though they were no slouches in that realm either but to focus it on grief, to focus it on this idea of how television has shaped our culture so significantly to sort of set aside a lot of that action that has largely defined Marvel up to this point and say, we know that that is part of what makes the superhero stuff fun, but what else makes it so engaging and so important to our our fabric um, as a culture, as a country, or what have you. I thought that that was absolutely key and, and fascinating about um, WandaVision in particular and this sort of new direction that it's taking with its Disney Plus entities. I'm super excited to dig into uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier and is also Loki. Um, that's going to be... I can't cuss here, but yeah, it's going to be pretty great.
2: Something that I think is really interesting is that WandaVision was actually supposed to come out after The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Mm -hmm. and it was due to a kind of production hiccups, uh, which, of course, we're sort of all, I think, acquainted with (laughs) due to the past year, Um, but just a COVID-related delay on Falcon and the Winter Soldier's part. And so it's going to be interesting, Shannon. we'll We'll have to touch base after you watch it, because I think that the Falcon and the Winter Soldier is, is more sort of what I would expect to be the first Marvel uh, show uh, on Disney+, Plus as they sort of expanded to the new medium. Uh, and, and it knowing that it was supposed to come first and that WandaVision was supposed to come second is an interesting uh, additional layer mm-hmm. when you are watching The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. But you're right. I am very excited for Loki because I think that that also, is at least based on the pre, you know, the trailers that I've seen and sort of what my expectations are for the show, looks like it really is trying to reinvent or reimagine what Marvel uh, can be. And because Jack Schaefer is on our list, she's also co-written Black Widow, which is coming out this summer. So it's going to be interesting to see. um, you know, that movie has been in the works for a long time, whether that through line is also there on sort of the film outposts or if it's Mm. a much more recent sort of development with these, with these shows. So lots to, uh, lots to chew on in the, in the coming months when, when those titles are coming out.
0: Yeah. I, I will, I will just say my last piece on WandaVision, um, as a comic nerd, I know, I know Shannon is as well. The thing that WandaVision accomplished that, it made me realize that the Marvel Cinematic Universe has not accomplished, uh, and maybe this, I don't know if this is a hot take or not. It's just comics were always metaphors, right? Like, growing up, I read the X-Men. X-Men was a metaphor for civil rights. It was a metaphor for being a teenager, right? Like, for feeling like an outcast. Every single plot line, every single issue, every character is a metaphor. Um, That kind of got lost in the MCU. Like, the MCU is a lot of, like, interesting characters, often well-written, beating the crap out of each other. And I love it, man. I mean, I'm there for it. It's certainly—but it's different. And when I try to explain to people, like, what I mean when I say that X-Men really went places, comic books really went places in, you know, it's definitely in the 80s and, and 90s, I have a hard time explaining that because they're just like, yeah, you know, Iron Man seems all right. I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's different. WandaVision— it, it, yeah. That's a show, man. That it made me feel things. It made me th- <laughs> it made me think about a lot and just the mature and and depth, the maturity and depth it brought to grief to uh just I don't know, man, there's so much. So if if anyone from the MCU is is listening to this, I hope they keep it yeah. up because that that kind of depth makes a big difference uh, in, in the enduring kind of quality of these things, but uh, but we have uh, like ninety five other people to talk about. We're not going to talk about them all, uh, but I did. I can't. We can't really talk about Creative One Hundred without talking about the agency world. Um, the and then we'll come back in a minute. Just we'll close on celebrities because the list of celebrities who are in there is always really fascinating, and I want to get everyone's thoughts on some of their favorite folks who made the the list. But Stephen, while we got you, as I mentioned, we have fifteen international creatives uh, spread out across Europe, South America, Africa, uh, Asia. Who were some that uh, really stuck out to you as talents that are really kind of getting a global reputation?
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, I've got to say the whole list is so impressive. Uh, One that we were just only writing about her promotion uh, just earlier this month is uh, Shaka Sobani, who is the chief chief creative officer for Leo Burnett, but she is now globally uh, Leo Burnett's uh, uh, chief creative officer. But she has been heading up the the London team uh, for the last few years and certainly, especially with the work for McDonald's, which is... Has been emotional. When actually, when we talk about engaging uh, audiences, the McDonald's work here has been extraordinary in that respect. And uh, Shaq has certainly been heavily involved and in at the forefront of that. So, be interesting to see what she does uh, on a on an international scale. There is also uh, again from publicist Cristiana Bocasini, who is the global chief creative officer. Uh, she is uh, publicist Italy and um i mean i feel like i've been writing about her for years but especially of late the work that uh she has been involved in when it comes to heineken uh they've been producing a ton of work this last year a lot of it really funny and so christiana has has been at the forefront of that
0: yeah and while also doing like the, the uh, leading their work on Barilla and diesel yeah. i mean like it's it, Pupulsa is really just killing it on all three of those accounts, and she is the recurring <laughs> theme across each one.
1: Definitely. So uh, it was actually, I mean, it's great that we're doing this internationally because just look at the talent that is out there that um, that probably deserves more recognition than it's getting on an international scale. So. Another from London uh, who probably Americans will know, Nils Leonard, who is the founder and chief creative officer of Uncommon Studio. Again, the last few years, I feel like every week or two, uh, there's a new piece of creative that really captures the attention of uh, the market in Europe. And that is a creative studio that has been around for four years, but it's easily one of the most talked about um, places where it's just a constant conveyor belt of interesting work uh so we have nils on there as well
0: i I have to uh and you can you can help me with this story here but uh the the origin story of how nils ended up founding uncommon is is fascinating to me because i will just say it one year at can lions uh, i had a dinner with nils who i believe was cco at um at uh it was gray right uh at gray london and And the CEO and I think one other. and So the entire leadership of Great London and we were at this dinner and we had this fascinating conversation. And then literally days later, what happened,
1: Stephen? Well, I wasn't at the dinner, so I don't know what happened at the dinner. (laughs) Uh,
0: You can I want to know
1: why I wasn't at that dinner, in fact. But uh, they up and left. They broke away and created Uncommon Studio.
0: So I've never seen anything like it like an entire leadership team including the CEO quitting
1: yeah
0: <laughs> and like and of course it took a while for them to announce what they were doing because of yeah, I'm sure conflict. you know contracts and whatever but uh I've never seen anything like that. So what it. was
1: talked about at that dinner that encouraged that? then?
0: None of that. No. Yeah, yeah. we were all like, you know what we should do. Uh, no, like, if, if anything, I was really impressed they managed to not hint at all in this dinner with journalists that uh, that they were starting something. But uncommon, to your point, we cover it like every 30 seconds now and not because of any sort of favourites. It's just real yeah. good. And it seems like their mission was to create a new kind of agency that just created content in a way that's not just, here's an ad, here's an ad. Um, you know, they, they really covered up with some ideas every agency says that oh we're an idea agency but like literally a lot of their stuff we have a hard time even writing about because it's just so amorphous and and doesn't fit in any box
1: yeah it's uh still waiting to find the flop from them actually but when we do we'll jump on it but yeah the work is just <laughs> consistently top drawer uh another another one that um i want to highlight is and i can't I know I'm going to get his name wrong, but Hafern Gunnarsson, who is the creative director at Brandenburg. Hafurn, if I have got that wrong, find me and kill me. But uh, uh, some of the work that he's been involved in, it's a a campaign that I absolutely love, and it is to celebrate uh, and um, promote the sale of fish in Iceland. So they have created a festival called Fishmas, where uh, every couple of days... People uh, will celebrate Fishmas by eating Icelandic fish, and they have created a story of Father Fishmas, and they are going <laughs> to almost make it like a holiday where there will be recipes and how you how people can best eat fish in Iceland. And I just uh, love the campaign. I love the idea, but I love the story. It's
0: of- a holiday that's. It's a holiday that's celebrated like twice a week. Yeah, right? we're going to create. Apparently,
1: <laughs> going to create a village for Father Fishmas. Okay, <laughs> how far can this go? The uh, the
0: uh, that team Brandenburg and Iceland also did one of our. We named one of the best ads of twenty twenty. Although I mean, not an ad, but they recreated the visual identity of Iceland's uh, essentially their national soccer team, their their um, their national league, uh, and there was an interesting conflict there. Is that people have always said, why isn't the national crest of Iceland on our Soccer team jersey, and then the answer is because, like, it, it law prohibits that they cannot. Uh, the law, the local law actually says they cannot, so they came up with this incredible visual identity. If you look up Iceland Soccer Ad Week, you'll find it. Uh, we've written a lot about it. It is an incredible, if you want to talk about creating a brand identity, creating a visual identity that's really authentic and unique. And I want to own these, these jerseys, I don't know anything about Icelandic football, doesn't matter. Uh, it's uh it's so good, um, and so like I'll just say that they took like Icelandic lore and they turned it in all this imagery it's it's great that is so keep an eye on Brandenburg that is one of those shops that is you know, I would not be surprised if they were our international agency of the year one of these days uh soon, just because they're they're punching so far above their weight. On that note, uh, we've got another shop that is just getting so much attention. That's Gigil in the Philippines. Uh, this is a word that means basically the indescribable joy you feel when you see something cute, like a baby or whatever. And you're just like, oh, that's like, that's that word. Um, but it was founded by uh, Badong Abasamas and Herbert Hernandez, uh, who are just fascinating. Very different dudes, but also very complimentary uh, to each other's skill sets. Uh, they're kind of absolute superstars in the Philippines. You have seen their work. If you're the kind of ad nerd who listens to this podcast, you have seen their work. They do really surreal and honestly, like, um, hard to watch uh, ads. <laughs> they did stuff for RC, uh, RC Cola. They did some very, very dark and bizarre ones. If you ever saw like kid with glasses on his back and his parents are drinking out of them. and Yeah. Uh, I can't even do justice by it. They did one for Julie's Bake Shop, uh, Philippines uh, bakery chain, uh, where a guy at the gym who's bullying some older women gets uh, turned into dough and baked into rolls. Um, honestly, everything they—literally everything they do—is fascinating and gets global attention. Uh, they are just really uh, dominating that space of like modern viral marketing. So check them out. Uh, That's Gigiel. And we should, uh, I could talk about these all day, but I don't want to bore everybody who's not into international ad talents, um, but we also have, I mean, we've got so many more ad talents on here. If you really want to know who is doing incredible work right now, we've got an entire list of agency leaders. We've got an entire list of talent that you should be watching, uh, like at the creative director level. So check it out. Yeah, check out the creative one. I wish we had time to get into even, even a small fraction of them. But I wanted to close out on the celebrities and influencers 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 lists. This is one that's always a blast, always the most contentious among the Adweek team. Because again, we do not repeat any talent. Uh, Shannon, you probably know that one of my favorite aspects of this year's list is that we have Lil Nas X and we have Nas. We did it. (laughs) We
3: We finally did it. (laughs) with
0: Big Nas and Lil Nas X. Uh, But I mean, that's not like a joke or anything. Both of them have just been absolutely at the top of their game.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Nas has been doing some really incredible work. I mean, all his life. Literally all his life. But and and
0: finally the Grammys uh, recognized re- <laughs> this this year
3: <laughs> when uh, we had a conversation prior and when you pointed that out to me, I was like, that can't be true. There's no way that that is that's the fact.
0: That's the Grammys in a nutshell. Like Grammys will always like ignore all your actual like, you know, your your industry changing a uh, culture-changing work. They'll ignore all of that if it's in a genre, and then and then like 25 years later, when you put out like an album that no one listens to, they'll be like, "This is the album." <laughs> <You know? laughs> <And it's, laughs> but hey, whatever it takes for Nas to get his proper, so I, I'm I'm very happy for him.
3: Yeah, I mean, utterly remarkable. And on the marketing side, he's been doing some incredible work as Hennessy's brand brand ambassador, um, "Dear Destiny," which was a piece that um, went up, I think, in March, and it was. Honestly, one of the most gorgeous bits of work that I've seen this year thus far. Um and he wrote that one, right? Yeah. Like he's
0: typically their voice their the voice of Hennessy uh, across their, their work from Droga Five. But uh he wrote uh that one and it's and VO'd it. It's it, yeah, Nas is great. It's just
3: a really bit of moving work. And then you have Lil Nas X who I mean, what hasn't he done this year? <laughs> He's literally done everything, um, including Dancing with the Devil. Fantastic for him. Happy for him. <laughs> but just him sort of... We've talked a lot uh, at Ad Week about his sort of genius approach to self-promotion. He really has it down at such a young, young age and has been able to leverage sort of the, the up-and-coming social media. I, I mean, it feels weird to call TikTok at this point up-and-coming still. But to be able to leverage his personality there into just an immovable brand has been really cool to watch. And also really cool to just be this voice in the queer community that... um that is like unswayable and watching him just sort of stand his ground ground when he got all of that blowback from Montero has been really, I, I hate to use the word inspiring, but it has been just incredibly awe-inspiring to watch in real time.
0: Yeah, I think his response where he said, y'all have been telling me to go to hell for years and then you get mad that I make a video Perfect. there.
3: Perfect. <laughs> it, was, it was the best response he could have come up with and it was so quick. I just, I can't say enough about him. I think even before I started working at Adweek, David, we've talked just about my fascination with his career trajectory and how he essentially blew up because the billboard, uh, because Billboard said that he wasn't allowed on this one specific list. Can you imagine if they had just let him hang out on that list for a little while? We probably would have never gotten to this point. And he used just... Marketing prowess and the power of Petty to rise to where he is now, just utterly beautiful.
0: Well, and and I mean, I'm sure most of our listeners know this, and this is certainly not me uh, taking away from his talent, which is considerable. But and this is another talent of his. Lil Nas X is a growth hacker. Mm-hmm. That's what he. That's what he is. He's the first musician megastar growth hacker. The the dude. Is he, he, you know, he's made some great songs, but the way that he gets those out there, the way that he rode, that he identified and rode and really drove forward the TikTok uh, audio, the role that audio on TikTok plays in making songs a hit, which we all know now, right? Like a TikTok song is a known Mm -hmm. thing. Um, But he did it. He took advantage of Reddit and a lot of these platforms of just dropping in and being like, he would create famously he would uh, ask questions about his own music uh, to, to just to generate answers. So he would ask, like, what's that song that says I'm going to take my horse to the Old Town Road? <laughs> and then someone would respond, that's Old Town Road by Lil Nas X. Like, he would just do that basically to build SEO, to build awareness, Um I mean, his tactics were phenomenal. And, and I think some people kind of make light of that. I'm like, hell no, man. That's to do all that and to actually create the content. Uh, he's like a one man mega influencer agency. Brilliant. Uh, so, anyway, yeah, I just, uh, I, I, I never get enough of, of seeing what he's doing and getting excited about what's next. Uh, Kelsey, we've got uh, even more streaming talent, more TV talent here. We've got Z Way Famoda. Uh, we've got. Um, the Emerald Fennell, uh, who created, uh, uh, Promising Young Woman. And also, uh, had her, did she have a role on, on, uh, The Crown? I want to say um, she was,
2: uh... Oh, gosh. I'm, I, I'm not I a Crown a watcher, but... fact check right now.
1: <laughs> she was on a British show called Called the Midwife. Uh, yeah, yeah. the early the series of that.
0: Um, uh, but so, uh, yeah, I mean, like, It just feels like you're, and Jason Sudeikis, we haven't even talked about Jason Sudeikis, uh, Kelsey, like, has anyone not said the phrase, I mean, I feel like it's been required by law that you say something nice about Ted Lasso on social media at some point over the last few months.
2: It's so earnest, you can't, right, like, you can't not um, sort of be charmed, buy it. And I mean, what a great thing for, for Apple TV plus to now to have that sort of in their arsenal of shows, because it's, yeah, I'm just thinking anecdotally, it's one of those shows that I had been told by so many people to watch it. And my family is not I big TV people. I'm very funny that I write about this and they're like, wait, what show? But, um, even they were saying to me you have to watch ted lasso it's so so good uh and that to me is sort of a sign that things have uh have taken off when my dad uh is telling me uh you know to watch a show i'm like okay it's made it
0: (laughs) yeah that that show to your point it's like a lot of people even said i was told to get apple tv uh, apple plus to like watch this other show but the only answer is Ted Lasso. Like that's the only thing I really have to watch, and then and then people will stick around, which you know is obviously what they want. Uh, but they'll stick around for what's the the Soviet moon landing show? A lot of people talk about that one. Uh, of for all mankind, um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. There's ones like that where I I've not I've not made the the jump yet. Uh, I've not I mean we have so many damn streaming services in my house and we're always just like are we really using are we really using HBO Max and then and then something great will come along and you're like oh, I guess we are and so they, they they've they they've kept us to now um, but I will just say uh, in closing uh, I like to give a nod to some of the lesser known talents that make this list uh, so that you can keep an eye out for her. there's a young man named Dwayne the Rock Johnson uh, who made the list this year like wow, I've
2: never t- heard of him <laughs> what does he <laughs> do he
0: yeah so they, uh he is a, a professional athlete and entertainer. Um, <gasps> the I, like we kind of had to keep checking. I, I, I guarantee you I checked no less than 17 times to make sure that uh, The Rock had not already been on Creative 100. Now, I think the reason is because like he has certainly had a huge ad presence. He has certainly had a, a big movie presence. But I really feel like it's only in the last two years where now, with his tequila company, with his social channels and what he's doing there, he, like Will Smith, I will say, he has developed this kind of cadre of of up and coming filmmakers to be, you know, kind of his social content uh, architects, I guess. Um, and so his his social content's phenomenal, like. The Rock has always been omnipresent, but at the same time, it feels like more so than ever. Uh, And he's just involved in so many things, and he's pushing himself out in so many different directions while also still, you know, making movies. But uh, I think what he did with his tequila brand, which, of course, we've dedicated an entire episode talking about celebrity-owned spirit brands and what a trend that is. uh, But felt like his year. Congratulations, Dwayne The Rock Johnson.
1: (laughs) But we won't mention Baywatch. Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) Okay, we won't mention that. (laughs)
0: <laughs> you broke the first rule. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, yeah, there's a lot, there's so many more folks on this list, uh, Dwayne Wade and uh, Gabrielle Union. Uh, there's, there's a lot more names that you will recognize, a lot of names you should recognize because they're doing amazing work. So check it out. Check out Creative100 on adweek.com in the print edition. Excellent cover story that is a must read by Kelsey Sutton about Amber Ruffin, as we talked about at the beginning. Kelsey, thanks so much for joining the show this week.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's always so fun to to join you. So thanks so much.
0: Well, we will definitely as we've talked about man streaming just runs the universe now. So and I will say because we don't have you on here a lot. And I don't know if it's lockdown or whatever that's making me emotional and soft lately. But uh, Kelsey, you've been such a wonderful colleague for so long. And I'm just such a huge fan of your work. And you have been just more vital than ever uh your coverage is absolutely phenomenal every time i read it i'm just proud to get to work with you and so it was wonderful to have you on the show
2: oh, wonderful having uh wonderful being here thank you so much i'm going to uh write that down and take that energy into my memorial day weekend
0: <laughs> <laughs> wonderful the uh you're breaking the 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 podcast magic of revealing that we record this in advance so that we can sneak away and go to the beach but everyone <laughs> that's It's earned. We've earned this. Shannon, thank you so much for all of your contributions to this year's Creative 100 and for joining the show.
3: Yeah, of course. Anytime. I'm always happy to be here.
0: Uh, Stephen Laptek, Adweek's uh, European Bureau Chief, Uh, great to have you on. Thank you for all your help on this year's Creative 100, and thanks for spotlighting so much of the talent. Stephen's got a lot more coming. Uh, We're really building out our content in Europe, Uh, and Stephen obviously is at the helm of that. So keep an eye on this young man. You're going to be seeing him all over the place. Stephen, thanks so much for making time for us. Cheers, great all right. Our theme music is by Home This week's episode was produced by Nick Gardner And edited by Lane McGibney. If you haven't already, uh, please leave a review On Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Those reviews mean a lot to us personally And they help new listeners discover the show You can reach us anytime at podcast at adweek.com That's podcast at adweek.com For Adweek, I'm David Greiner And we will be back next week